Hi, Pete Buttigieg here. Maybe you know me as Mayor Pete. In my new podcast, I'll be talking to people from every field whose ideas and actions will shape the era that is about to begin. We can take this time and use it in a way to bring people together. When people protest in a country, that means they still love it enough that they still believe change is possible. I have hope that we are actually going to figure out how to allow people to be free-hearted, free thinkers. Listen to The Deciding Decade on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Will robots one day be capable of raising human children as their own? I'm Holly Fry, and as the host of the companion podcast to HBO Max's new show, Raised by Wolves, I'm speaking with leading scientists and historians to answer some of the very real questions posed by this mind-blowing sci-fi series from Ridley Scott. Stream Raised by Wolves now on HBO Max, and subscribe and listen to Raised by Wolves, the podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's me, Josh, your old pal. And for this week's SYSK Selects, I've chosen one of those overlooked gems from way back in July of 2012, eight years ago. Can you believe that? It's how white collar crime works. So sit back, relax, and learn about how the other half commits crime. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant uh, sipping on his La Croix uh, mineral water. Yeah, it's delicious. And um, this isn't even sponsored by La Croix. They should that was be a free ad. We've yeah. done this like two or three times. Yeah, I agree. La Croix, call us. <laughs> uh, and since you put the two of us, a couple of microphones, and an ice-cold can of refreshing La Croix mineral water together, you have something called Stuff You Should Know. It's a podcast. It's a podcast. I'm looking to see who makes this, actually. Oh, no. I thought it was going to say, like, Coca-Cola in small letters. Is it LaCroix? No, it's uh, Sundance Beverage Company. Oh, yeah, they're huge. From Minnesota, I think. They're, that's perfect. That is that? a perfect sponsor for Stuff You Should Know. A little small guy thing? that's yeah. producing a great product. Agreed. LaCroix. Uh, so, Chuck, <laughs> yes. I've got an intro today. Awesome. I've missed these. <sighs> Stop criticizing me. No, I mean... Um, so... Very recently, a trio of Brits, economists, mm-hmm. British economists, bone dry. They're yeah. like walking saltines. <laughs> They're very exciting. Um, but anyway, these guys did something pretty cool. They studied bank robberies. And their study was published in a journal called Significance. It's actually kind of a cool journal. It takes statistics and applies it to real-world stuff. So it's an interesting statistics journal, interesting. if there is such a thing. Um, and if there is, this is it. Yeah. And what these guys found was that bank robbery is actually a really terrible way to make a living. Yes, I would agree with that. Morally, Economically, it's a terrible way to make a living, too. Oh, sure. They, the they, payoff is no good. Right, yes. They looked, at, they looked at a lot of variables, like the number of people involved, and they found that the bigger the gang, the more, um, the bigger the haul, I guess. But it also meant that's one extra mouth to divide up amongst, unless right. you're like one of those bank robbers that just kills everybody afterward. Yeah. You, you don't want to get in bed with one of those guys. Like Ben Affleck. Or like in uh, Heat. Wasn't there a lot of killing afterward in Heat? Yeah, and in The the Town, Ben Affleck's a recent heist movie. Yeah, yeah. A lot of killing going on there. I was going to let that one walk by, but you brought it up twice. I enjoyed it. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, and Okay, so anyway, um, there's a lot of variables involved. But what they found is no matter what, in the UK, you can make off with about 31 gram. That's not bad. Per? 
Yes. And on average, that's what that's what the take was. Okay. So in the UK, it's not so bad. Um, but at the same time, 31 grand, what are you going to do with that? Yeah, I mean, you, if you want to live the high life, you got to rob like four or five banks a year. Easy. Right. Or Right. Okay. Or um, if you're in the US, you have to rob a lot more than that. So the UK suffers about 106 bank robbers a year. Okay. In the US, there's 12,000. Wow. And of those 12,000, the average take is like four grand. They only have how many a year? England? 106. God, that's amazing. They have really stiff, stiff gun laws, and I think that probably deters yeah. bank robbery because you kind of have to have a gun. Or a note in your pocket that says something. Well, these guys figured out that the presence of a firearm increased your take. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so 4300 bucks. Yeah, that's for, not much at all. No, and about a third of bank robberies, I guess in both countries, yield nothing. <laughs> Zero? Zero. Wow. So it's a lot of hard work, a lot of risk for very little sure. gain. yeah. The real money is in white-collar crime. Oh, yes. You want to make some cash quick? Maybe one good heist? Yeah. It's going to set you up for the rest of your life. And even if you're caught, even if you're caught, the chances are you will have a mild, if any, penalty levied against you. Well. White-collar is sure. the way to go. Yeah. We're talking guys who um, tell people that they are financial investors and get friends and family and... Uh, um, parents of the little league that they coach to give them 900 grand um there's other guys who wow. just have little penny stock companies yeah. that pump up their um stock uh prospects called stock touting yeah and um dump all of their shares sure um that's investor fraud they make hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars it's where the real money is and historically speaking it has really low risk yeah even if you're caught all right, so we're endorsing white-collar crime. We're not endorsing it. Okay. I was being facetious. Oh, okay. I thought you meant up with white-collar crime in 2012. No. No, as a matter of fact, it's going down. The, the times are definitely changing. There's a big struggle going on right now as to figuring out the just the right amount of punishment yeah. with white-collar crime because there's a lot of factors involved. It's a lot different from blue-collar crime, e.g. stealing a car, robbing a bank. Sure. There's a lot of differences that differentiate it, that separate the two. Um, and one of those now is the, the sentencing form is probably stiffer, which is a total reversal yeah. from how it used to be before. And they've also closed a lot of the club feds down that got so much press. In yes. The well, they, they've changed them. They're still there. They just are changed. Well, a lot of them were shut down, like period. Oh, really? Yeah, just to ship them to real federal penitentiary, uh, penitentiaries. 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 Uh, that reminded me of a word that we'll definitely be hearing at some point in this podcast. What? It's a Ponzi. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> that's definitely white collar. Uh, part of the problem with white collar crime, Josh, as you know from reading this, is that um, it's hard to come up with an exact definition of what constitutes it. So that's why they have a hard time getting great statistics on punishment and fines levied and how many they're catching. But I'm going to go with nonviolent crime Yeah, that typically involves, and you have to say things like typically because it's kind of all over the map, Right. typically involves um, deceit and fraud mm-hmm. uh, given by a perpetrator because of their op- occupation. Yeah, and for that reason, a lot of times it's called occupational um, crime. Yeah. 
Uh, and if you look at it through that view, which is a very broad view of white-collar crime, sure. it's not just the execs in the $3,000 suits yeah. who are perpetrating this. It's the guy who's stealing pencils from work. Yeah. or uh, Nonviolent, deceitful, sure. especially if somebody asks him if he did it and he says no. Yeah. And it's because you are, you're, you're granted this opportunity through your occupation. Actually, I would call that petty theft. It's, but I'm saying, like, on a, a very, very broad definition of white yeah. collar crime, that that definitely counts. But for the most part, when you think of white collar, you think about the CEOs, you think about investor fraud, embezzlement, that kind of stuff. Exactly. Uh, feds have been after it in the United States uh, in earnest since 1974, as far as a, a dedicated division. Yeah, the FBI. Um, yeah, and that's because of Nixon. I read. And then, uh, despite that, about 300 billion dollars a year, and that's. A pretty rough estimate. That's a 2010 estimate. 2010? Yeah. So let's talk about a few ways you can commit white-collar crime. Yeah, because the definition you gave was, like, beautiful. It's pretty good. Um, And there are some that just, like I said, investment fraud or embezzlement are just prototypical white-collar crime. Insider trading is one. That's a big one. Yeah. Which falls under securities fraud, right? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's a type of securities fraud. So basically insider trading, we've... I swear we've done something on this. I don't think so. It, it must have been in our Fanny and Freddie presentation then. Yeah, maybe so. Because we studied a lot of this stuff. Did we? Yeah, and I thought we'd done a podcast on it. I guess not. But insider trading is essentially like, um, let's say that you and I find out that Discovery had an awesome quarter. And so we go and buy a bunch of Discovery stock for nothing. And then it just shoots through the roof after the stock price comes up. That's insider trading. Sure. That's using private knowledge about a publicly traded company yeah. for your own gain. That's a no-no. We or, can both or giving go to tips jail. to other people. Yeah. That would count as well. And then if like, they uh, took Martha part. Stewart. Yeah. If they took part, then they would be uh, insider traders as well. Exactly. And right. it works the opposite way as well. Like if you find out that there's a lot of terrible, informa- terrible information that's going to make your stock drop. That's and right. you sell before that information becomes public, you're in trouble. Big trouble. Uh, securities fraud, which um, insider trading is kind of like that, um, mm-hmm. but it is also manipulating, cooking the books, you've heard that term, yeah. of your own company to maybe undervalue um, a stock before it goes public. Or I mean, there's all different variations, but it basically involves manipulating numbers in a dishonest way. Right, that pump and dump scheme yeah. where you, it's stock touting, there's, that's all securities fraud. Um, and then there's antitrust violations sure. or another good one. There's, this has been kind of big lately. So um, Google is supposedly hogging the YouTube metadata, which is preventing Microsoft from making a decent app for it. Oh, really? Yeah. And um, and Google's like, well, it's proprietary or whatever. And sure. Microsoft's like, no, you got to kind of have to share that. That's They're alleging an antitrust violation. Wow. Companies kind of police one another with that. Oh, I'm sure. And then also price fixing is a big one, which is like the opposite of companies policing one another. It's collusion between companies. And like Apple right. and book publishers um, fixing the prices of e-books allegedly has been going on. Lately. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Man, it's going on all over the place. Isn't it's it? it's a dirty, dirty, dirty world. Uh, <laughs> bribery, one of the oldest tricks in the book. Um, obviously, that uh, involves some sort of a payoff or a kickback in exchange for uh, in- whatever, information. Um, uh, I get the bid. My company gets your bid mm-hmm. for this government job, and I get a little kickback, or I give you a little kickback, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, any kind of uh, maybe favorable decision. That can influence your company. Yeah, little little 
grease in the palm going on. It's like, here's three high-quality frozen steaks. Please consider it. And yes. you say, consider granted. And within each of these steaks is a $1 million bill. That's not even any, that <laughs> yeah. doesn't even exist. What, frozen steaks with money in them? A million dollar bill. Oh, okay. We know about frozen Deutschmarks. Somebody sent us a dollar, by the way. I want the dollar. Well, I'll, I'll give you 50 cents. All right. That's, well, I guess that's 33 fair. and a third. We got to give Jerry a haircut. <laughs> Don't go there. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> uh, embezzlement? Yeah. Office Space? Everyone's seen the movie Office Space? Sure. That little program they had to like shave a cent or something off of yeah, like, it was every like a transaction? Yeah, uh-huh. That's embezzlement. They were uh, given the opportunity through trust with books, yep. with accounting. They basically had access to the money and skimmed some off the top. That's embezzlement. Pure Trusted and simple. the wrong guys. Yeah. Money laundering, which we have done a podcast on. Yep. The Ponce schemes. Yeah. Which Tax we've done a evasion. podcast on. Tax evasion. Huge. Um, so basically, all of the, those are all the stars. There's also other ones like um Espionage, industrial espionage, corporate espionage. Yeah, selling secrets. It's white collar. Sure. Um, remember the lady who tried to sell Pepsi's secret yeah. to Coke? Yeah, yeah, that was pretty hackneyed. No, Coke's secret to Pepsi. And yeah. Pepsi was like, wait right here. She wasn't. And they uh, went and called the cops. She didn't do a real good job. I bet she was surprised. Yeah. Um, environmental law violations, like dumping toxic waste. Yeah, covering that up, like uh, Aaron Brockovich style. Yeah. Um, one of the things they point out in here, which is when it comes to things like your little uh, office space scheme that you just touted, mm-hmm. um, a lot of times it's difficult to imagine victims. Like in office space, they think no one's going mi- to miss a penny. Right. It's a huge company. Right. So you commit these crimes without realizing that someone is hurt somewhere down the line. If you dump your stock, your company stock that you know is about to tank, and I'm not saying it's understandable but if you've like worked your whole career investing in this company with your 401k yeah you know it's about to tank and you're like man i need to sell this or else i'm done for my family's done for yeah you don't think about the people buying the stock they're the victims no it's absolutely true and i mean like you are being pawned you are pawning your problem off on somebody exactly. else but i think you paint a really really excellent scenario Like, you can, in some cases, feel bad for the white-collar criminal, Um, especially if it's just some average Joe who's worried about his 401k. Yeah. Um, Or in the case of Enron, you don't feel bad for the the upper dudes. You feel bad for everyone in that company that got defrauded. Right, but they were strictly victims. They didn't didn't turn around and, like, try to dump their stocks. But that's a very visible case of... Like screwing over your own employees, but you make a good point. Like even if the even if the criminal is sympathetic, there still is a victim. Even if it's just some amorphous trader they'll never meet. Even if the victim is some like hedge fund manager, yeah, it's really tough. There's like a really weird spectrum here. There's like I don't know if it's a bell curve or like uh, the UV spectrum. Who knows? Yeah, but. There's sympathies like placed in different spots. Sympathies and antipathies. Yeah, placed along this. This depending on who did what, and what they gained from it, and what their motives were. Agreed. Because you got also have credit card fraud and computer, and mail fraud, and counterfeiting and things like that. Like you know the Nigerian email scams. That's white collar. But and they're in the same boat as like Ken Lay and Jeff Skillings. Right. Enron. Exactly. Same scummy crooks. Or let's say you commit a little credit card fraud and you 
or bankruptcy fraud, and you're just like, this would be an easy way to get out of my debts, yeah. or I just say someone stole my credit card. It's very easy there to not envision a uh, a victim because it's it's Chase Manhattan Bank, and like they're going to notice. But what happens is they raise the rates on you and me, and all of a sudden everyone across the board is paying more money for stuff. Yes, that is that is true. That is very true. Yeah, and I, that is I think everybody should probably I think a good companion piece that occurred to me is to go listen to our um, why do corporations have the same rights as you? Yeah, one of the fundamental flaws of um, corporate policy is that you serve your shareholders first. Right, like you need to adhere to the law, but really ultimately, like anything you can do to serve your shareholders is your mandate as a as a corporate governor. Right. Um, that includes keeping the profit margin as high as possible. Yeah. Which you're not going to go to your, your shareholders and be like, hey, we're making enough money. We took kind of a hit, but we're still making a ton of profit. Right. So we'll just take a little hit this year. No, it's we're, we took a hit, so we're going to fire people. Yeah. However you reconcile that, I mean, that's your own personal beliefs, like what, what you feel about that. But that is reality as far as business goes, right? Agreed. When there's fraud, and there's adjustments to the fraud, they're absorbing the fraud, and it's the corporation trying to get as lean as possible. Yeah, they're not going to take the hit for that. No. They're not going to say, oh, well, a bunch of people defaulted on their credit cards this year. I guess we'll just have a bad year. No. And I know in reality that's how it works, but I just find it disingenuous to be like, well, everybody suffers. You know, like people lose their jobs because of fraud. It's like there's a a point B in there that that has to be held accountable to some degree. Well, which is your own friggin' ethical code of conduct and like – how about not doing that because it's the wrong thing to do? No, but I'm saying like there's an institution that's oh, yeah, absorbing yeah. the hit and then turn around and firing this poor guy. Yeah, exactly. It's just – it's tough because the I came across a word when they were describing white-collar crime, uh-huh. giving a definition of it, and they said victims, colon, diffuse. Yeah. You don't meet sense. the person. Yeah. The the victim passes along the, the hit to mm-hmm. other people. It's a big – it's nebulous. Yeah. And even if they're raising rates by like a quarter of a percentage point or you're paying an extra $2 as a consumer mm-hmm. a year, mm-hmm. it's like it's still not right. Yeah. You know? A ravenous pandemic, a ruinous recession. Protests, riots, racial strife, police brutality, and yes, Donald Trump. America in 2020 feels like apocalypse now, again. I'm John Heilman, and in Hell and High Water, I'll explore this moment in a series of raw and real conversations with the people who shape our culture. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Listen to Hell and High Water on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, my name is Amina Brown, and I am a spoken word poet, author, and host of new weekly podcast, Her with Amina Brown, brought to you by Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio. Her with Amina Brown is launching on Tuesday, September 29th, and each week will feature hilarious storytelling and soulful conversation while centering the stories of Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and Asian women. Join me as we remind each other to access joy, affect change, and be inspired. Listen to her with Amina Brown on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
So where did this come from? Uh, Josh, it came, it sounds like it came from a cold wool delivery boy. I want to know more about this. Was this dude just cold, or did no. he really steal a lot of wool? No, so you're talking about the carrier's the case. The carrier's case of 1473-ish. It's, it's the first um, white-collar trial. Yes. Um, and, and it resulted in oh, the first white-collar law in 15th century England, and this wool transporter mm-hmm. was given a bunch of wool and said, hey, take this wool to this person, and it was his job. Yeah. So he decided to instead just keep the wool for himself for his own use. Okay. So you looked into this more? Yeah. I thought he might have been like cold on his journey. No. And said, you know, I'm going to keep some of this wool. No, he, he kept some of the wool. He, I think he kept all of it. Okay. And just, but somebody gave it to him. He's like, thanks, chump. So he and was a was jerk it. after all. He was. But the key is, and this is something that has, is woven into the history of white collar crime. It, what he did was not illegal at the time. Right. The law that was enacted as a result of the carrier's case was they were saying, okay, this isn't, out, this isn't illegal, but it's obviously there's a huge problem with this, so we're going to create a law right. that outlaws this act so people can't do it anymore. Good point. And basically that's what happened. Well, that's kind of what happens with every law, I guess. Someone commits it first and then someone says, hey, maybe we shouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But in this case, especially like uh, the Industrial Revolution in the West, obviously you started getting these larger corporations and all of a sudden things like monopolies – and price fixing and employee uh, safety and all these things <laughs> come into effect for the first time. So that's sort of when it was really born and when they started saying, hey, we need to look at something called antitrust. Yeah, again, like monopolies were not illegal, but when a company bought up all of its competitors and said, oh, <laughs> suddenly the price for your groceries <laughs> yeah. are uh, like through the roof. Right. Where else are you going to go? Uh, it wasn't illegal. But the, the people of the world started screaming, and governments finally responded. And it was really the U.S. that first had the real first solid response in the Sherman Antitrust Act in, like, the 1870s, maybe, I think? 1890s, uh, Yeah, sorry. 1890, named for uh, John Senator John Sherman of Ohio, Republican dude. Yeah. Chairman of the Senate Finance, Senate Finance Committee. Yeah. Which I didn't know they even had way back then. Uh, I, mean, I, I, I didn't did, either, but. but, I mean, it seems like a basic committee there. So this is interesting in that it was uh, voted on, it won by a vote of, in the Senate, 51 to 1, in the House by 242 to 0. Wow. So there was one dude that didn't vote for it. And then, I think 25 years later, when they came up with the Clayton Antitrust Act to really put some punch into the Sherman Act, yeah. it was 277 to 74 and 46 to 16. So in that 24 years, it sounds like maybe things got slightly corrupt here and there. Well, it wasn't that. It was that, uh, well, maybe it was. Yeah. But there was also some real problems with the Sherman Act. It was really vague. Yeah. It basically said, like, now from here forth, all um, anti-competitive corporate measures are illegal. Right. And then it left it to the courts to decide what was what, and the courts weren't really in the mood to enforce it. So it went largely unenforced. Although uh, American Tobacco Company... And Standard Oil, like two of the biggest companies in yeah. the country, were dissolved under the Sherman Act. Yeah, Standard Oil, big time. Imagine that. Like, imagine going to a company now and saying, like, hey, Apple, you're just too big. Yeah. So we're going to dissolve you into 31 companies. <laughs> we have all these federal regulators here, and they're going to come in and look at everything and then dissolve you into different companies. Sorry. That's what they did. Yeah. Okay, but even still, it didn't have enough teeth, so they came up with the Clayton Antitrust Act. 
And then yeah. that one really spelled things out. Like, um, you couldn't do price discrimination anymore. Right. Which, if you were black in America during the Jim Crow era, price discrimination was mind-boggling. Oh, yeah. You walk into a store, if you're allowed in there to begin with, yeah. and they'll just make up whatever price they want. Yeah. It's, it was really, I'm reading this um, Consumerism in America book, and it's at this point now, and it's really just this blemish on American history. Yeah. I, I mean, like, slavery wasn't bad enough. I and know. we had to, like, have slavery light through the Jim Crow era. Yeah. It's, it's just disgusting. Exactly. Um, okay, so uh, there was no price discrimination, allegedly. Corporate mergers were outlawed. In the Clayton? Yeah. Act. Um, and then interlocking boards where you had like competitive companies, yeah. but the same people on the board of each. Right, right. You can't have that. And then also exclusive contracts where it's like, hey, uh, Home Depot, uh, you can sell our um, weed whackers, but you can't sell anybody else's. Those right. contracts were out. Right. Hey, Home Depot. They do stuff like that now, though, right? Maybe not exclusively, but they carry like they do now. a very well, limited number of brands. Corporate mergers, interlocking boards, exclusive contracts. Oh, all, all that stuff went all, away. It all got chipped away. Uh, okay. It's just, I mean, this 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 act is like not enforced anymore, basically. Well, that's one of the things that bugs me about like grocery, or actually the big box hardware stores, grocery shopping. It, you, you, you only have access to what they who they have partnered with, right? Now, whether it's your potato chip that you want yeah. or your weed whacker that you want. It's true. And most of the big box stores also have exclusive contracts the other way. It's like, yeah, we'll sell your weed whacker, but you can't sell it. You, No one else can. Right. So it's like a real gamble, I understand, to like sign on to one of these giant corporations. Well, that's one in the Walmart effect. That was one of the, the things. I think they used a, it's like a tent company or a awning company. Mm-hmm. And, like, this mom-and-pop awning company all of a sudden gets a Walmart contract, and they're like, sweet. They answered all our prayers. They ordered, like, 30,000 of these. Mm-hmm. They order 30,000. They open up, like, three new buildings, hire all these employees, and then the next year they come back and say, we want 30,000 more, but we're going to pay you about 60% less. Mm-hmm. And you've already bought the buildings, and you've, you know, invested in the in the materials and the people, and all of a sudden you're screwed. You know, one thing that I've long thought, and I'm going to totally take flack for this, but I still think it's worth saying. Like, you hear, like, well, that's just business. Yeah. I feel that any any institution where, like, morally reprehensible acts can just be, you know, offhandedly sure. dismissed as a matter of course. Yeah. Be, of that institution. Yeah. Is inherently flawed. There's an inherent problem with it yeah that's not okay agreed like we don't just go well that's just murder right you know (laughs) or well that's just stealing yeah you know welcome to earth human right no we have moral and legal guidelines that we follow and business and corporations have so so long stood outside of these things right that it's just it always bugs me when it's just like what are you gonna do yeah I, i i i don't like that so sorry, I'm off my soapbox. No, now. I agree completely. Well I'm said, off of sir. my Tide brand soapbox. Well, well said. Um, so things are kicking along here in the industrial uh, west. Corporations are getting larger, uh, and all of a sudden, these crimes start happening. And something called a muckraker mm-hmm. in the 19th and uh, early 20th century comes about. And I didn't realize a muckraker was exclusively a journalist. Yeah, it's a, it's another name it was, for an investigative journalist. I thought it would was anyone raking muck. No. Um, but it's specifically a journalist who 
basically early on said, you know what? There's bad stuff going on, see? Yeah. And I'm going to expose you. Right. Upton they, Sinclair was one. Oh, really? And he wrote The Jungle and changed. Oh, of course. I mean, the FDA basically came about because of that investigation that he conducted. Well, muckrakers raked a lot of muck and caused a lot of problems in these companies. And um, one of the things that came about because of the muckraking were, you know, things like the Clayton Act. The, yeah, that's exactly right. Exposing all the stuff. Exactly. And things like the FDA, federal regulations, consumer protections. The muckrakers basically stirred up public sentiment like, hey, don't be idiots. Like, this stuff's going on. Right. And a lot of people said, well, it's not illegal. And then, fortunately, there were guys like um, E.A. Ross, who was a criminologist and a sociologist. And he started really kind of looking into this and said, hey, man, these people might not be criminal, but let's call them criminaloids. Like, that was the coin, the term really? coin for people who, especially in business, carried out these terrible acts that weren't illegal, he argued that even though it's not illegal, yeah. they're causing ill, and these people are still responsible for him. So make a law that outlaws it, dummies. Yeah, yeah. And he inspired a guy named E.H. Uh, e. Sutherland. Okay, he came before Sutherland? Yeah. Gotcha. He was at the, um, Ross was working at the time of the muckrakers, and then Sutherland came about 20 years later. Yeah, Sutherland coined the term, actually, white-collar crime in 1939, and he was a criminologist and sociologist, and he pretty much... He had a broader definition mm -hmm. that basically it was uh, the high society and not the lower class at all committing these crimes. Right. Which nowadays you can't really say that because anyone can get a stock tip it's and true. commit, you know, it happens all the time across all spectrums of the class system. But Sutherland's point was, and he wrote a book called White Collar Crime. Yeah. Um, his point was is that there is a huge bias in the United States um, where the where law enforcement and the courts leaned heavily on um, the working class crimes, sure. and just bl basically ignored the crimes of the upper class, yeah, and said this is not okay. Like um, if a guy's going to steal a thousand dollars from a cash register with no gun or anything like that, right? Like there are other factors, but let's just say a guy steals a thousand dollars from a cash register and he's poor. And a guy steals a thousand dollars from an investor, and he's rich. Mm -hmm. That's they should be treated equally, and they're right. not. And that's what Sutherland's point was. And he was the first dude to really bring this to light, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, Ross kind of started too, but Sutherland was very well received. It was well received in certain corners, but there were also certain flaws pointed out by people uh, over the years. Um, one of uh, the things mentioned in the article is said that he failed to distinguish illegal crime from deviant. Uh, mere deviant behavior. Right. Like, apparently his his whole premise was like, uh, you're into donkeys, you're a white-collar right. criminal. <laughs> exactly. And the other thing I mentioned, too, was that he pretty much said it was anyone, like any upper-class nonviolent crime. Right. And that's definitely evolved, and I think fairly. Sure. I think you can be uh, working class, you can be business class. If, if you, like, that's a big big part of white-collar crime's definition is that your opportunity arises because of the trust that's granted to you through your occupation. Yeah, even if you're a lower-level employee, mm -hmm. you still may have access, like the lady who uh, wanted to sell the Coke secret. She wasn't like a CEO. Or no, she, she was yeah. uh, an admin, I believe. Amy Nelson. We're the hosts of iHeart's newest podcast, What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. 
Amy and I met on a business trip three years ago. Since day one, we've talked about everything from growing our families to growing our companies. We've basically been in an endless conversation about how it all works and sometimes how it doesn't. We talk about the juggle of parenting and work and also about how we both want to make a lot of money but also be the best moms possible. We've also bonded over our love of women's stories. We all know the stories of industry titans like Bezos and Jobs, but the stories of women remain incomplete. So we ask the questions that no one else even touches. From closing deals while pregnant, to winning Olympic medals while losing on pay equity, to my personal favorite, falling in love with someone who's not your husband on a book tour. So listen to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Will robots one day be capable of raising human children as their own? I'm Holly Fry, and as the host of the companion podcast to HBO Max's new show, Raised by Wolves, I'm speaking with leading scientists and historians to answer some of the very real questions posed by this mind-blowing sci-fi series from Ridley Scott. Stream Raised by Wolves now on HBO Max, and subscribe and listen to Raised by Wolves, the podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so there's a, there's one thing that, that, like you said, they, they like to shoot a hole in, uh, Sutherland's theory that, or, or they say his definition is too broad because he did include behavior that's not illegal, but it's a very legitimate point to say you kind of have to, because if not, then we wouldn't have had the Sherman antitrust act. We wouldn't have had the Clayton act. We right. wouldn't have had, um, you know, the FDA, all of these things that, uh, that the carrier's case, he would have gotten off scot-free. Yeah. What he did was not illegal, so yeah. it has to evolve over time. Agreed. Okay. And it has. Agreed. So let's talk about, um, I guess, the, the impacts of today's modern white-collar crime. I was like, man, that was suspenseful all of a sudden. Thanks, dude. Um, yeah, we've talked about a few of these, about it seemingly not having a victim, but what happens is... Um, you rip off a huge corporation, they'll raise the prices. There's another ripple effect. Mm-hmm. You talked about cutting jobs to meet you know, the needs of the investors if it's a publicly traded company. Right. Um, when there's stock fraud committed, insider scandals like Enron are going to ripple out oh my God. throughout the stock market, cause like, you know, basically cause people to be unsure and have no faith in the stock market all of a sudden. Yeah. That's dangerous. Yeah. Think about all the people who just lost everything i know oh my god i get yeah i get just as angry if not more angry at something like that than you know some like heinous crime Mm -hmm. yeah i'd say equal yeah they're both scumbags (laughs) yeah okay um so you said like in 74 the fbi first started they that's when they created this white collar crime division yeah so apparently like 1974 yes yeah and it it was a response like this University of Michigan survey that they conducted between 1958, I think, and 1973. They found that um, people who said that they trust the federal government went from 73% to 37%. And, and then in what span of time? Between 1958 and 1973. Wow. 
Yeah, it flip-flopped yeah, in that I, short of time. I could see that over that time period, the 60s. Yeah, one of the big ones was just like fraud and corruption at high levels. And so the FBI created this white-collar crime thing. One of the other things that differentiates white-collar crime from regular working-class crime yeah. is the police's ability to police it. Right. You walk into a, a, a room and there's some guy weighing out cocaine. He's a criminal. Yes. You walk into a room and there's some guy on a computer doing a pump and dump scheme. Who knows? Yeah. The average cop isn't equipped to detect this kind of crime. Right. And as a matter of fact, even very, very well-trained cops aren't typically equipped to detect this kind of crime. One of the hallmarks of white-collar crime is that it's very difficult to prove. Yeah. It's very difficult to uncover. Mm -hmm. And it's also difficult to prosecute. Yeah. And there's no... uh smoking gun there's no paper trail or, yeah. or there may be a paper trail but it's probably electronified sure <laughs> so it's a little harder to follow you got to really you know you got to have people that know what they're doing right. and that's why the FBI created that division and i guess they're doing a good job but it's kind of hard well the justice department has been going after white collar crime yeah. lately under obama pretty hard here or there um and then the sarbanes oxley act um, yeah, definitely step things up. And some say, some say too much. Yeah, I mean, I've had to comply with this at various, uh, when I worked in the film business, production companies had to like jump through way more hoops right. with paperwork because of Sarbanes-Oxley. Yes. Do you want to tell, do you want to tell them? Well, it's, it, it, it was in 2002 and it was to improve corporate governance, which is basically accountability between corporation and the stakeholders. What it uh, amounted to was a lot more Paperwork, essentially. A right. lot more proving of numbers and showing numbers yeah. and jumping through hoops. It was a, a, a direct reaction from, of the fallout of Enron, from the fallout of Enron and Tyco and like all the yeah. other companies uh, around that time. Um, but one of the other things it did, Chuckers, was um, it quadrupled uh, sentences in a lot of cases for white-collar crime. Yeah. So now you have guys like Bernie Madoff getting 150 years. There's a guy named uh, Sholem Weiss who was involved in, like, the breakup of some insurance company, he got 845 years. Wow. He, he gets out in 2754. I don't think he's going to see that. I, I don't either. <laughs> but, I mean, the, a guy named Rich Harkness got 100 years for a $39 million Ponzi scheme. Like, these, and all of this is, like, post-Sarbanes-Oxley. Yeah. Except uh, Sholem Weiss, which is really saying something. But um, he still got that, yeah. that kind of sentence. But I mean, like, so now now sentences are like quadruple. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Maybe maybe this is a little too much. Like just retribution on the rich. It is. And that's kind of, uh, I think, why a lot of people are having a hard time feeling bad for ridiculously wealthy people who were hucksters and frauds. Yeah. Or people who bilked people out of their retirement accounts. It's tough to feel sorry for them. But legally speaking, it's like, well, wait a minute. Um you were worried about the guy who stole $1,000 out of a till right. being treated differently from the guy who stole $1,000 from an investor. Now it's flip-flopped. How is that any better? Exactly. One of the arguments for these kind of things is that these people are traditionally and historically have been treated differently because they look like the judges that are sentencing them. Yeah. And so judges historically like really have taken it easy on them. Yeah. Um, Let's go ahead and just call them white dudes. Okay. But they also have been, um, you can make the case that they are usually first-time offenders. They're usually family people 
Um, that's that's something that the judges put out there. Yeah. Like, well, this is a family man. He's not much of a flight risk. He's probably never going to do this again. Yeah, is he a danger to society? Yes, he didn't use a weapon, yeah. which is a huge, huge differentiation. Yeah. And so sentences have typically, typically been light. But... Um, you can you can also kind of say well you know where where it feels like we haven't quite felt it out like we've traditionally ignored white collar crime now we're really sticking it to them well it's that whole argument with prison is it like punishment for a crime done or is it rehabilitating a person who has a problem with crime well with an 845 year sentence it's yes. making an example out of that person sure because since you can't police it another way to prevent it is yeah to send a message through the courts. Like, you do this, man, you're going to prison for a long time. Yeah, I don't know if that's such a deterrent, though, for some of these people. I don't know. I mean, think about it. 20 years in a, in a federal pen, you say Club Fed is not around any longer. Yeah, true. Um, and, I mean, these, this is like 20 actual years. Yeah. Um, some guy named uh, Thomas Petters recently got 50 years, and he will spend 40 years in jail, and he's 52. And he will probably die in prison now. That's a big deal to somebody who's like, well, maybe I shouldn't do this insider trade. Maybe I should let yeah. this 50 grand just walk by because it's not really worth it. Well, something like that. I'm talking about the ones who are getting rich by the tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. What I want to see is that these people don't get out of prison and still have all those millions of dollars. Yeah. Like hidden in different foreign accounts and yeah. offshore islands and... Uh, like the financial part is what really bugs me. I meant to, I didn't get a chance to, I meant to look up and see if any of the Enron victims and employees were ever repaid or if they were just SOL. I'm under the distinct impression they were SOL. Really? Because the company was in such bad shape that even dissolving it and it's just like, splitting sorry, its assets up. No, I think, I think they, some people did get some money, yeah. but I don't think it was anything approaching what they lost. Well, if whoever commits these crimes gets out of jail and they have two pennies to rub together, then those two pennies more than they should have, I think. Well, that's the thing. Like, So the government started prosecuting under the RICO Act, yeah. which is the same thing they bust up mafia organizations with. Um, and they've been fighting white-collar crime with that. And one of the things about uh, the RICO Act is it allows states and individuals who are harmed to sue for up to three times the damages. Yeah, but even then, all they have to do is say, yeah, I don't have that money. Are you kidding me? Well, it's true. Can't pay it. No, it's true. But like um, in the Madoff case, the guy who's who was assigned to basically get money back for investors yeah. has gotten... I don't remember how much Madoff fleeced, but let's say it was $8 billion. Okay. The guys managed to like get like $6 billion back. Oh, really? Yeah, he's done a really good job of, wow. of getting the money back. And that's just a, that's, that's an example. It's not yeah, an actual figure, real. but it's, it's something pretty significant. You're still going to get an email. It wasn't $8 billion. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to the ones where it's like, hey, man, we don't listen to you for free to hear your opinion about class. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's move on to other countries. Um, things are different all over the world. Um, obviously, when it comes to big business and business dealings, uh, Western Europe has followed right behind the U.S. Uh, most wholeheartedly with laws to prevent corruption. Eastern Europe is coming on board a little slower. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you go into other uh, countries like in Western Africa, and it may be customary to grease palms to get a deal going right or in india where apparently if you're a truck driver you're gonna have to bribe people to keep your rig on the road right. and that's just how it is there right and, and not only is it customary it's frequently legal 
Yeah, Russia. Yeah, bribes all over the place. If you want a land contract, you might have to bribe somebody. So if you're a multinational corporation, it's tough to do. That's business. headquartered in America. Yeah, yeah, you have uh, like a real problem facing you, especially like I said, the um, Justice Department under Obama has been prosecuting white collar crimes and going big time after. Um, people under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Oh, really? Which says if you're an American company, you can't engage in bribes even if it's legal in that country. Well, good. Yeah. But what's the point? Like, why hamstring American business abroad? Yeah, exactly. Um, And to help this out, actually, there has been a unified uh, committee called the um, company, I'm sorry, committee called Transparency International. And they are out to get rid of corruption and to unify business uh, business ethics all over the world. Right. And that's the that's the reason that you hamstring American business because yeah. it's basically saying, "Hey, uh, we can take the hit in the hopes of pressing the rest of the world into the same clean up their act. Com- competitive uh, laws we have here in the states that's that right. work very well." So good luck to them. Yeah. That's it, man. I got nothing else. No. We should uh, we should play this one out with um the talking heads big business okay <laughs> agreed okay um so chuck let's see uh if people want to learn more about white collar crime i would strongly advise them to go read this article by jane mcgrath she did a good job and there's a simpsons reference in it so way to go jane um you can type in white collar crime uh, in the search bar at howstuffworks.com which friendo brings up listener mail that's right josh I'm going to call this uh, Hot Off the Presses, Good Cause. I'm a sucker for that stuff. Okay. Uh, Chuck and Josh and Jerry, I want to say thank you for all the hours of listening. Uh, my brother Chase and I have been uh, listeners nearly as long as he has been making them. There was even one New Year's Day where all we would do was listen to your Hangover podcast on repeat. Yeesh. I, hope he's... I don't know if that's good for a Hangover. Yeah. Uh, it's funny and informative, and I always feel like calling my brother after listening to the latest episode. I'm writing you because it's uh, recently his birthday. He's the best brother in the world and downright awesome human being. It would mean a lot to me if you could tell uh, the stuff you should know listeners about his latest project. Uh, when his friend Jim survived cancer, he told Chase that he gained strength from the music he loved. Over two years, 2,600 tracks. 2,600 tracks. That's a weird way to put it. What would that be? 2,600, would that be... Wait, how many? 2,600? Yeah. That'd be 2,800. Would it? Or 2,200? No, 2,600 <laughs> plus 200 is 2,800. Nearly 200 artists is from this, all over. This person's insane. No, she's not. Oh. Over two years, 2,600 tracks, nearly 200 artists from other countries all over the world have allowed them to share that message. Uh, they are releasing their second compilation disc, Electronic Saviors, colon, Industrial Music to Cure Cancer. So it's these artist compilations they're putting together. Gotcha. Apparently 2,600 tracks. Uh, they are a registered U.S. Uh, charity, and uh, all proceeds go to cancer research. And if you want, if you're into electronic music, and if you want to support cancer research, yeah, you can go to www electronicsaviors.com and uh, that is something Chase has got going and his sister Laura Dudley uh, is a big fan of her bro he sounds like a swell guy nice I'm all for it 
music. That is, that is good Therapy. stuff. Curing way cancer. To, way to promote a good cause, Chuckers. We try to do that. You did good. Um, yeah, we always want to hear about good causes. Yeah. So you can uh, get in touch with us. Let us know about yours. We'll try our best to let everybody else know about it, especially if people can support it. Agreed. Um, let's see. Also, enjoy a little Talking Heads. Big Business <laughs> from the live album Stop Making Sense, released in 1984. We're sure it's up on iTunes, Amazon, and elsewhere. Um, you can get in touch with us at uh, SYSK Podcast on Twitter. Uh, you can go to Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. And you can send us a regular old email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm John Heilman, host of the podcast Hell and High Water from The Recount. America in 2020 feels like apocalypse now again. In this podcast, I'll explore the turmoil and upheaval roiling the country. You've heard the phrase, come hell or high water? Well, right now we're facing both hell and high water, and it's going to leave a mark. To understand this moment better, I'm calling on the people who shape our culture in politics, entertainment, business, tech, and beyond to talk through what we've lost, what comes next, and what needs to change, and how we can turn these overlapping crises into an opportunity to reimagine and rebuild everything that's broken, meaning pretty much everything. So join me every Tuesday for a series of conversations, raw and real, unrehearsed and unpredictable, about this mess we're in and figuring out how to pull together and rise above it. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Listen to Hell and High Water on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Pete Buttigieg here. Maybe you know me as Mayor Pete. We know that this, the first year of the 2020s, has been one of chaos and anguish. But I believe now is the beginning of America's deciding decade, a time that will present leaders and all Americans with decisions that will shape life in this country for the rest of this century. In my new podcast, I'll be talking to people from every field whose ideas and actions will shape the era that is about to begin. I look at everything through a racial lens. Is this going to perpetuate systemic racism or is it going to help dismantle it? Well, the rest of the country and elected officials have to start doing that. They have to know what systemic racism is. When people protest in a country, that means they still love it enough that they still believe change is possible. I have hope that we are actually going to figure out how to allow people to be free-hearted, free thinkers. Listen to The Deciding Decade on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.